invite you to turn with me to John chapter 21. So the end of a calendar year and the start of a new one brings all kinds of mixed thoughts and emotions, doesn't it? Maybe that's just me. There's this kind of nostalgic looking back and realizing the past is gone. You never get that back again. You might look back with fondness on blessings, God's grace poured out, benefits that you experienced. There might be scars and struggles that you've walked through in this last year. There's this excitement and anticipation as you look ahead to a new year and the start of a new year, just turning over a calendar. just feels like a, a blank slate. Everything you meant to do last year, everything you didn't get to, all the resolutions and goals and ambitions, and here's a, a fresh start. So it, it's this incredible reminder that we are, we exist by God's pleasure in time, and time is just flying by. And all we can see is this sliver that we call the present and the past behind us. The only direction we can go is forward, but we can't see it at all. Isn't it a weird existence? (laughs) It's the direction we're going, but we're just looking back. We can see the past behind us. So a year and a week ago, we started our series through the Gospel of John, and today we come to the end. And as we've highlighted again and again, John was inspired by the Spirit of God to record faithfully, accurately, an eyewitness account of things that happened in the past. He's looking back saying, this is what happened. These are the works and the words of Jesus. And he wrote all of this down for a purpose in order that you may believe. He tells us that in John 20. We've mentioned this in probably most of the sermons in this series. This is the main point of the entire book, John 20, verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John's looking back at what Jesus did in the past, and he wrote it down, and he told you, and it's been preserved for these 2,000 years so that you can have an accurate knowledge of them. And there are enough of these works recorded to produce in you real saving faith in Jesus. God's word is sufficient for that. But John wrote these things about the past, ultimately, for the sake of your future, your eternity. Wrote these things down so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and by believing, you may have life, eternal life, that goes on and on and on forever. That's what John is about. And as we come to the end... John has this sense of human finitude, limitation. He's aware that he has just barely scratched the surface in telling you who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And he says in the very last verse, chapter 21, verse 25, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. And were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So believing in Jesus, believing that he is God's anointed king, that he's the savior of the world, that's not the end of the gospel. That's just barely the beginning. And when you believe in Jesus, that's when you begin to live all of life by faith in Jesus. 
And that's where this epilogue to the gospel leaves us. Giving those who now believe in Jesus, that's, that's the whole point, to convince you to believe. And so for those who do believe, then, then what? John writes this epilogue to give, I think, a sense of direction, some aim, some clarity about where to go from here, living by faith in Jesus. For those who believe in Jesus, what comes next? Well, to believe in Jesus is to begin to follow Jesus. That's the main point of John 21. It's this command that Jesus repeats twice. He says it to Peter in verse 19, follow me. And then he says it again to Peter in verse 22, having a conversation about John, and he says about John, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Follow me. And John didn't write this gospel so that you would know some trivia about Jesus or so that you would simply agree with some historical facts about Jesus. He wrote it so that you today the end of 2019, on the verge of 2020, so that you would trust Jesus and follow Jesus and treasure Jesus and delight in Jesus today and tomorrow and forever. The, the kind of belief, the kind of faith that John has been calling for throughout this gospel is not just a passive knowing, a passive agreeing. He's calling for an active dependence on and trust in Jesus. Faith is not just reciting facts about parachutes or knowing the history of parachutes. Faith is strapping the parachute on, climbing in the plane, flying up 10,000 feet, jumping out of the plane, pulling the cord, and entrusting yourself to the parachute to do what it promises to do for you. That's what faith is. And so, like every other Spirit-inspired author in Scripture, John doesn't just leave you with a command, follow Jesus. He grounds that in glorious truths and precious promises that actually communicate God's grace to you so that as you hear them and believe them, God's grace comes to you and changes your heart desire so that you want to follow Jesus. So that's what I want to do today. Here are five reasons to spend 2020 and the rest of your earthly and eternal existence following Jesus and plumbing the depths of his glory and grace. Before we turn to those, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we receive your word with humble hearts, with grateful hearts. Thank you that you've spoken to us and told us all we need in order to know you rightly, to know you accurately, truly, to know who you are to know how you save through Jesus Christ, your Son, whom you gave to the world because you so love the world. Thank you for all that you have revealed to us about yourself in the person and the works of Jesus through the Gospel of John in this last year. What a journey it's been. What glory we have seen. And yet we know we, we've just barely scratched the surface and we want to see more. We want to see more of you. And we trust that you will go on revealing more of yourself to us. So do that now today. Just another glimpse of your glory that would satisfy our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Five reasons to spend 
today and tomorrow, the rest of your life, following Jesus as Jesus calls for in John 21. First, follow Jesus because Jesus is alive. That's the main point of verses 1 through 14 in chapter 21. John is retelling events that took place on the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias. And he's telling this in order to explain how Jesus revealed himself alive and in human flesh to his disciples. Follow along as I read John 21. I'm going to start in verse 1 and read through verse 14. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So we'll get to the glorious truth at the core of this resurrection appearance in a minute. But don't overlook just this simple fact that John makes clear here. Jesus is alive. Alive in the flesh. Notice he was seen by at least seven disciples who were fishing this night. So there are a few basic, undeniable facts about the resurrection claims uh, that everyone has to deal with, skeptics and unbelievers as well as believers. Everybody deals with these same basic claims that Jesus' disciples claim to have seen Jesus alive. If you reject that Jesus actually rose from the dead, you still have to account for that claim. Also, nobody ever produced the body. So you might come up with other theories about, you know, conspiracy theories and whatever, but somehow you have to account for the fact that these men, actually, many of them died for this claim. They claim to have seen Jesus alive. And the fact that there were seven of them present who saw Jesus all at the same time is a significant thing. One of the ways that skeptics try to explain away the resurrection is they say, well, that claim that they they supposedly saw Jesus, those were spiritual sightings, and they use the word spiritual the way a lot of people do in this day and age, imaginary, not real. They had hallucinations or dreams or visions or whatever, but they didn't actually see Jesus in the flesh. He wasn't alive 
in skin and bones. But the problem is, groups of people don't have shared hallucinations of the same experience. They don't have the same dream together. You know, a group of people can get together and do the same drugs and have highs and go on trips, but they don't see the same things. But these seven men had the same experience with Jesus. Just that simple fact alone is a powerful evidence of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Secondly, another simple fact, easy to overlook here, Jesus ate meals with his disciples after the resurrection. In Acts 10, 40 and 41, Peter is preaching to a group of Gentiles, and listen to how he, as an eyewitness of Jesus, how he describes it. God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Evidently, that was a big deal to Peter, eating and drinking with Jesus after he rose from the dead. Post-resurrection meals are a big deal because ghosts don't eat. That's what Jesus himself says to his disciples in Luke 24. So Jesus makes this point to appear to his disciples and to prove to them that he's not back in some ethereal ghost-like spirit. He's alive in flesh and bones. And that's one reason that he says to Thomas in John 20, put your finger here. See my hands. Put your hand, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Brothers and sisters, that that means these details exist for the sake of your faith. Do not disbelieve, but believe. When you think about the resurrected Jesus, how do you see him in your mind's eye? Can, Can you see this mundane, earthy scene? Jesus bent over on a beach digging a fire pit black charcoal on his fingers, gutting a fish. It just doesn't get much more earthy than that. That's Jesus, alive from the dead in a glorified body, preparing fish and bread for his disciples to eat. At Christmas, we celebrate the word made flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. But don't miss this. The incarnation was not a temporary 30-year deployment Jesus went on. I'll take on flesh for 30 years, do the work, and then escape from that misery. No, Jesus became a man, and he remains a man. Fully God, fully man, now forever. Today and forever. Jesus didn't give up his human nature after the resurrection. Nowhere in Scripture are we told that Jesus ever ceased to have a body after the resurrection. In Acts 1.11, when he departs, the angels tell the disciples who are gathered there, why do you stand there staring at the sky? This Jesus whom you've seen ascend, he will come back in the same way that he departed, which I take to mean with a body. Revelation 1.13, when John has that heavenly revelation, what does he see? One like a son of man, still in human form. Theologian Wayne Grudem says, Jesus did not temporarily become man, but his divine nature was permanently united to his human nature, and he lives forever, not just as the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, but also as Jesus, the man who was born of Mary, and as Christ, the Messiah and Savior of his people. Jesus will remain fully God and fully man, yet one person forever. 
And that's good news for you. That's good news because it means you can follow Jesus. The command, follow me, was specifically directed to Peter. But you can be sure that is Jesus' command to you 2,000 years later. Following Jesus looked different. When, when Jesus first approached these fishermen, the beginning of the Gospels, and he calls them to leave their nets and follow him, it looked like literally following Jesus around from town to town. They actually walked with him, ate meals with him. Following Jesus today looks different, but disciples of Jesus are still called to follow Jesus. So if we're not literally following him around from geographic place to place, what does it look like to follow Jesus today? I think John has made it abundantly clear to us in this gospel, following Jesus today, because he is alive forever, means believing his words and trusting him and obeying him. And look at the promise that comes with that, John 14, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. He can do that because he's alive. He still makes himself known to those who have his words and keep them. Those who love him. So if you've never seen him, but you love him, if you've never heard his voice audibly, but you have his words and you trust them and obey them, he promises to make his home with you. Verse 23 of chapter 14, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. What a promise. Second, follow Jesus because Jesus rules the world. I think this is at the core of the resurrection appearance in John 21. Remember, John's point was not simply to tell you that Jesus is alive, but to describe, rather, how he made himself known. This is how Jesus appeared. So there's something significant about the manner in which Jesus makes himself known, which was through this miraculous catch of fish. And then notice that John emphasizes the fact that that is the moment when the disciples recognized it was the Lord. He draws our attention to the fact they didn't know it was Jesus at first, and then they recognized him still from 100 yards off, because of the catch of fish. So that's a big deal. John chapter 21, verse 7, the disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment. He was stripped naked for work. Maybe he broke a sweat. He was working hard all night, futile, fishing. He throws himself into the sea at that moment because they recognize it's the Lord. And then John tells us again in verse 12, when Jesus says to them, come and have breakfast, none of them dared ask, who are you? They, they knew. They all knew it was the Lord. We all have unique mannerisms, distinct voices, distinguishing features. I mean, some people you can tell from 100 yards away just the way they walk. Oh, that's so-and-so. You can recognize somebody's voice on the phone. So how did the disciples recognize Jesus? They recognized him by the authority of his word. It was the authority of his word. I mean, who just walks up and says, hey, throw your net on the other side and you'll catch something. And then it happens. They only know one person like that. It's the Lord. I mean, Peter and James and John, fishing was their, this is in their wheelhouse. These guys were professionals. This is how they earned their living before Jesus came and called them to be his disciples. And yet they, they caught nothing all night long until Jesus told them to cast their nets on the other side. Think about 
the guy who's not the fisherman, telling the professionals how to fish. I just think that, that's like me saying to you know, Dan Utsi or Isaac Satrowski or somebody who's just like you know, a professional hacker, programmer, did you try restarting it? Maybe just turn it off and turn it back on. That'll fix the problem. And they're thinking, I, of course I tried that. I already tried that. It's not, the, the point is not that the disciples somehow hadn't thought to maybe cast the net on the other side. I'm sure they tried every trick they knew all night long. The point is, Jesus rules the world by his word. Nothing happens apart from him, ever, anywhere. By rule the world, I don't mean he, he does magic tricks to impress people or to fool Penn and Teller. The, the catch of fish is a demonstration of the doctrine that John started out the entire doctrine with back in chapter 1, verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's the one who took on flesh. Everything that exists was made by him and through him and for him. And the miraculous catch of fish is just another proof that Jesus meant exactly what he said in John 15, 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He, he wasn't saying like, you know, that's just the church part of your life I'm talking about. That's just the spirituality part of it. Apart from me, you don't do anything. You don't catch a single fish. You don't succeed in a single venture. Not a single plan of yours comes to fruition apart from me. You don't do anything apart from me. I uphold the universe by the word of my power. Spoke it into existence. That, that's the fundamental reality of your life. It, you must follow Jesus because you have zero ability to secure your own well-being or to accomplish any of your goals for 2020 or beyond, apart from Jesus. He rules the world by his word, and he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. This is one of the most basic battlefronts of the fight of faith, isn't it? God warned his people, Israel, when he led them into the promised land about what they were going to experience there when he blessed them. Listen to the warning in Deuteronomy 8, 17 and 18. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. That's the temptation always when anything goes according to our plans. I did it. By my wisdom, by my effort, I did it. And God says, watch out, lest you ever think that. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. So it's not that you don't work. It's not that you don't have ability or power or intelligence. It's that he gave it all to you. You don't have anything apart from him. And so James says in the New Testament, James 4, 13 and 15, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Why do you boast like that? All such boasting is evil. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills. And the fact that this happens with the catch of fish. Peter says, let's go fishing. And the other guys say, we're going with you. And they don't catch a thing. I mean, even that limitation, that frustration is part of Jesus working out the whole scenario. 
That, that just helps me so much to know he rules over everything, including the plans that don't work out the way I wish they did. He's in it all. There are God-given limitations. Everything is ruled by his word. And our problem is our sinful tendency to self-reliance and self-sufficiency. But disciples of Jesus learn to live by faith, like Peter and James and John. He said, throw the net on the other side. We obey. Why? Because he promised. You'll catch something. So we do what he says, motivated by faith in his promises. And and here's how absolute the power and authority of, of Jesus is. These last words, listen to verse 25, last words of the entire gospel. There are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. My first inclination when I read that is to think, well, clearly that's hyperbole. Must be an exaggeration, right? I mean, the world is a big place. And I'm thinking, modern person, how much information you can store in a tiny chip. I mean, you could store a lot of information in the world, right? I I don't think John is exaggerating. I don't think he's just using some literary device. Throughout his gospel, he's been very serious about recording accurately, about being truthful with all of his words. I, I think he means it. I think he means the world couldn't contain everything. Think, think about it. If the heavens, if the highest heavens cannot contain God, 1 Kings 8, 27. And if God multiplies his wondrous deeds and his thoughts toward us so that if they were to be told, they would be more than could be numbered, Psalm 40, verse 5. And if Jesus is the eternal word made flesh, John 1, 14 then is it really much of an exaggeration to claim that the earth could not contain the record of all his deeds? Think about who he is. John has been trying to help us see this the entire gospel. He is the word. He's been doing deeds long before he took on flesh. He continues to do those mighty deeds, and he will do them forever. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. John 5, 17, my father's working until now, and I'm working. He is at work, and apart from him, we do nothing. It means nothing happens apart from his sustaining word. And you have no good thing. You enjoy no good thing for which you do not owe him thanks. So who could document? Who could count? Who could record all his deeds? And and if you could, where would you possibly store them? The created universe, God made it as a stage to display his glory. But he himself existed outside of created space and time forever. And that God took on flesh and dwelt among us. He has done marvelous things. They are wonderful in our sight. And so it's reason to follow him and worship him, trust him. Third reason. Follow Jesus because Jesus reconciles sinners to God. When Jesus told his disciples that he was going to be killed, remember, remember how bravely Peter declared, I, I will follow you even to death. I mean, he, he is ready to go. When the time came and Jesus was on trial before the high priest, Peter denied that he even knew Jesus. In other gospel accounts, he even called down curses on himself. Let me be damned if I even know that guy. He didn't do that just once. He did it three times, just as Jesus had told him. And and that's a loose thread that John ties up here in this 
section. Look at verses 15 through 17. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So Jesus started with this question, do you love me more than these? This this is kind of an ambiguous question. It's possible Jesus is asking, do you love me more than you love fishing? Or do you love me more than you love these other disciples, these other friends of yours? Do you love me more than you love them? I think Jesus is asking, do you love me more than these other guys love me? Do you think you love me more than they do? And I think that because John never suggests Peter loved his friends more than Jesus. That's not a theme anywhere in the gospel. There's no indication that there's anything wrong with fishing. However, there is plenty of evidence that Peter thought pretty highly of his own devotion to Jesus. He's the one who said, Lord, I'll go with you even to death. Mark records in his gospel, Peter said these words, even though they all fall away, these other guys, I will not. He's the one who pulled out the sword in the garden and chopped off the servant's ear. Peter had a lot of confidence in the flesh about his own ability to follow Jesus. Peter's the one who tried rebuking Jesus when Jesus was talking about dying. May it never be. It's not going to happen. It's not my plan for you. Now he answers Jesus with a measure of humility that wasn't there before. His answer is not, I got this. Lord, you're going to be really glad you have me on your team. His answer is just simply three times, Lord, you know. You know everything. That means you, you know how I failed you. You know how I denied you. You know how unfaithful I was. You know my sin. You know me. You know that I do. Deep down, I, I do love you. You know that. And, and notice the, the difference. Now, it's no longer confidence in his own love or affection that he can stir up for Jesus. It's just confidence that Jesus knows him. You, you know me, Lord. So three times Peter denied knowing Jesus. And three times Jesus asks Peter, do you know me? And three times Peter replies, Lord, you, you know everything. You know that I love you. And three times Jesus says to Peter, feed my sheep, tend my flock. What, what a beautiful scene of restoration. Is there anything more hopeful than knowing redemption is possible for us, for sinners, for the unfaithful, the idolatrous, the unclean, that broken relationships, that this relationship, broken relationship between man and God, that that can be restored. And this is good news for sinners everywhere. In spite of Peter's faithlessness, Jesus is faithful. And when he says to him, feed my sheep, he's not giving him like, here's your penance. If you do this work, that'll make up for it. It's not penance. It's not punishment. 
It's full and complete pardon, and on top of that, it's the bestowal of a privilege. Welcome in to my ministry. This is my flock. I'm the shepherd. I feed them. Come and join me in this work, this privilege, this task. It's a pardon, and it's a privilege. And the death and resurrection of Jesus means your past sin no longer defines you or disqualifies you from a life of discipleship. I mean, can't you feel the sting Peter must have felt that third time, that third question? Like, oh, he knows. He just knows I don't love him enough. He knows how unfaithful I am. And don't you find that even on your best days, your affections are inadequate? Your faith is weak. Your motives are mixed. You're just constantly aware that, Lord, I love you, but I'm aware of this remaining sin, how painfully slow my own sanctification is. And pray like Peter. Lord, you know. You know I love you. You know I love you. You know my fickle heart. You know my faults, my unbeliefs, my failures. Nothing's hidden from you. So I'm not trying to hide anything. I just cast myself on your grace. Your mercy alone. You can follow Jesus with that confidence in his ability to save you like he restored Peter. Fourth, follow Jesus because he supplies all you need. I'll run through these last two quickly. Jesus' provision for his disciples in John 21 is total and complete. He provides for them physically. He, he makes a meal for them, fish and bread, sets it on a fire. He welcomes them with these warm words, the very ones who had just abandoned him in his darkest hour, and he just greets them warmly. Come, eat breakfast. Sets a table for them. And then he makes provision for their spiritual care. When he calls Peter, feed my sheep, we see Jesus cares for his flock. By providing, calling people to tend the flock, he has ascended to the Father. He rules and reigns from the right hand of the Father, but he has left people in place to feed his flock. And so throughout John's gospel, we've, we've seen Jesus will multiply bread and feed people physically and then tell them, I'm the bread from heaven for your souls. He'll draw up water, and as they're drinking real water, he teaches them, I'm the living water. I give you the spirit who satisfies your soul thirst. We are, by God's design, body and soul, and Jesus is the one who meets and supplies all of our needs. So we look to him, and we trust in him, and we depend on him alone. And finally, follow Jesus because he's authoring every story, and he's authoring your story. Look at the rest of Jesus' conversation with Peter, chapter 21, verse 18. He says to Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And John adds for us the clarification, this he said to show by what kind of death Peter was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. That's most likely John who wrote this, the one who had also leaned back against Jesus during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? What an honest question. And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers 
that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but rather, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Following Jesus looks the same for all of us in the sense that for everyone, it's a matter of taking Jesus at his word, trusting him and obeying him. Following Jesus looks different for everyone in the sense that he is authoring our stories and working them out according to his pleasure. That's the key phrase John repeats. Jesus saying, if it is my will. That means our lives, how many days we have, it's all according to his will. If it's his will that you live to be 110, bless God. And if it's his will that you die young, we bless God. Whatever he has in store. And so he tells Peter, there's going to be suffering ahead for you. You're going to die against your will. You'll be arrested. You'll be killed. People are going to lead you where you don't want to go. And in this, you're going to glorify God. Just like I glorify the Father in my death, you're going to get to glorify God in the way that you die. Dying out of your allegiance to me, showing the world that, you're, that, that I am better than anything else life could ever give you or death could ever take from you. That's how you're going to glorify me. But that's not his will for everyone. And so we entrust ourselves to his wisdom and his pleasure. Do you ever feel that envy? Discontentment? I just, it's just at the root of our human nature, sinful human nature. To constantly be comparing ourselves with others. Who has more? Who has something better? Who has an easier life, a better life than I do? And then this root of envy wells up. And with it, all those feelings, attitudes of unbelief. Which treats God with contempt because it fails to give him thanks for what he's poured out. It fails to trust him for what he's provided denies that he's good. So if you feel discontent with the lot God has given you in life, if that thought ever runs through your mind, listen to Jesus' words to Peter and hear them spoken to you. If it's my will that that person has thus and such, does X, Y, and Z, what is that to you? You get to follow me. Follow me. Trust me. What an answer that, when you trust it, produces contentment and joy and security, even if it's God's will for us to endure hard things. Follow me. That's the glorious invitation that the Gospel of John holds out to you. So the evangelist has accomplished his task. He has set forth not very many, but a few of the things that Jesus did. Enough so that you can know that he is the Christ, the Son of God. Enough so that you know what he's like. Enough so that you know his words. Enough so that you can trust him and believe him and by believing have eternal life. And now the future lies before you. And the only way forward for anyone is by faith. We don't know the future, but we know Jesus and we trust Jesus. And he's alive and he's the king of creation 
and his blood atones for every sin, and he satisfies and secures all who trust in him, and he authors every individual story ultimately underneath the one massive, glorious story of his glory as he redeems the world and reconciles the world to himself. Therefore, he alone is worthy of all your worship, all your adoration, all your devotion, all your trust. So follow him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you know everything. You know everything. Everything actual, everything possible. Everything past, everything future. Every thought, every motive. Every question and doubt. Every desire and discontentment. You know it all. And under penetrating gaze like that, who could stand? Oh God, if you were to mark iniquity, who could stand before you? But with you there is forgiveness so that you may be treasured and trusted and feared and adored. And so we just, we, we want to give you the only fitting response as we come to the end of the Gospel of John. The worship and the praise and the adoration that you deserve, Jesus. You are the Word, the eternal Word, the living Word. You dwelt with the Father in glory, but you condescended to take on flesh, and you have made the Father known. You've made him known to us, and we know the Father today because of you, Jesus, and we thank you. And we know that our thanks is so inadequate, that our worship is so weak. So we just entrust ourselves to you, Lord. You, you know that we love you. Would you increase our affection as we head into a new year? Would you increase devotion? to you and love for you and delight in you and desire for you. Would you increase that out of hearts that are not trying to earn something from you, but just resting in the fact that everything we have comes from you and you're good and we love you. We praise you. Amen.